as you saw, we're going to be in the Psalms for the next six weeks. And the Psalms, whether you may not realize this, Psalms were meant to be sung as a congregation or they were poems to be used for worship. And so interestingly enough, sometimes when you preach through the Psalms, sometimes you miss some of the like emotional side of it as we sing songs this morning. There's just something unique about music that it connects your heart and your mind together in a unique way. And so we'll be tracking through the Psalms. You know, uh, music uh, has a way of kind of, I guess, being remade a lot. Think about maybe some of the songs that you've heard before and how that maybe you hear on the radio again today that they're they're being remade. The, The song from a long time ago even. I remember when I was in high school, I was driving with my mom, and I, can't, I must have been late high school because there's no way earlier on she would have let me have Top 40 radio on, but I had Top 40 radio on, and a, a song came on, and embarrassingly enough for a teenage boy, you know, my mom started singing along with this song, and I still remember what it was. It was, uh, your mama don't dance and your daddy don't rock and roll, and, and, she, and I was like, how in the world, mom, do you know that song? And she's like, oh, that was popular when I was in high school or, you know, when I was young. And so songs are remade. Well, interestingly enough, Psalm 14, where we're going to be today, if you take your Bible out of curiosity, you want to look and flip over to Psalm 51, they're almost identical. And so if you look at these, you're like, why? It literally was just a remake with probably different sound to it, different music. So when people sang it in the congregation, they would have heard a completely different tune and melody, but the same exact words. So Psalm 14, Psalm 51, identical Psalms. And so as we read this today, and if you're reading, ever read through the Psalms, know when you get to 51, hope you'll remember that. So Psalm 14, let's read it together. It'll be on the screen or follow along in your Bible or the church app. It says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. Let's pray and we'll look at this passage. Father God, I thank you for just the encouragement we've had so far this morning through the music and through the baptism and through Buzz's words and encouragement by giving up his comforts of the United States and moving to Liberia to share your word and see churches started. Thank you that we can play a part in that, not only through support of Buzz, but also direct support of starting these churches, God, and we thank you for that. We pray for our students who are in Lakeland today at Student Life Camp. God, may many of them be moved to be more passionate for your name. We live in a time, we live in a culture that has nothing, wants nothing to do with you, God. And I pray that they will be drawn to you, God, that you will 
reveal yourself in a, in a more fullness to them so that they can commit their lives to what really matters. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as you read the Psalms, typically this, they're identified by Bible scholars as different types. They like to put them in categories. And the Psalm we're looking at today is what I would consider called a lament psalm, although some put it in a wisdom category. But a lament just simply means to express deep sorrow or grief or regret to God. And more specifically, this would be called a communal lament, meaning the community is mourning over something that's going on. So it's not just an individual or a person that's hurting, but the entire community is, is hurting. So what are they lamenting? What are they upset about? What are they sad about? A couple things we'll see in this passage. People are living as if God does not exist, and then God's people are being treated badly by these people who hate God's people and who hate God. So two things we'll see. God's people are being treated poorly, and then there's some who just live as if God does not exist. Now, David wrote Psalm 14, and in this passage, he's addressing the fool who says in his heart, there is no God. We live in a day and time where knowledge is, is more accessible than any other time in history. No comparison, all right? It's, it's crazy. In fact, Brennan shared this with us the other day that 43.2 million minutes of video content are uploaded to YouTube every single day. 43.2 million minutes, all right? To help you put that in perspective, you could spend 80 years watching YouTube nonstop and never finish watching what was uploaded yesterday, all right? Yesterday, 80 years of your life, no sleep, 80 years. It's crazy. Knowledge is easily accessible, all right? We know, we use YouTube. If we need something done, I can look it up and watch how it's done. It saves us a lot of time and money. Knowledge is everywhere, but wisdom, not so much, right? Not so much wisdom out there. Because only God, who has infinite wisdom, can be the source of wisdom for us. And so we see in this passage today that those who deny or ignore God, God puts into this category as of fools. Now, me included, before I studied this passage, I naturally thought that verse one, the fool says in his heart, there is no God, was directly talking to atheists. And I think it does apply to atheists or agnostic, those who struggle with the existence of God, but it's not necessarily what, I mean, this is not what the psalmist had in view here, although it applies. So what's David getting at as he's writing here? The English word we have for fool is pretty much standard, all right? If, you, if you're older, you know the three stooges, right? Eh, you know, you think about that kind of thing when you think of fools, all right? You think of Don Knotts playing in a movie as a fool. But that's not the image that we're getting at here, but we're getting at David's pointing to those who scoff at God and his law. The Hebrew language had five different words for fool. We have one word for fool. And this word for fool here implies an aggressive, intentional rebellion against God and his law. And so the idea is not that I don't know who God or don't believe God or deny God's existence, but I'm just scoffing at God and I'm just doing my thing. Think of it this way, illustrate it. This, if, if, if two guys are in a bar and one guy is the most powerful, successful guy in the community. I mean, he's a wealthy businessman, has a lot of influence. And so they leave the bar, him and his buddy, and he gets behind the wheel having had too many drinks. 
and they begin to go through town, and not only drive through town, but, I mean, he's flying through town, all right? He, he, he's just driving reckless and crazy. The friend looks over at him, and he says, hey, you know, maybe you should consider poli- the police, right? And he's like, the police? What police? Right? What police? I do what I want to do. Nobody tells me what to do. Who's going to give me a ticket? And so that's the imagery here that we have from this psalm. It's what, God? Yeah, right. He can't do anything about what I want to do. So these foolish people refuse to acknowledge God, and they live lives of great evil. So it's not that they're intellectually ignorant, but they're just doing whatever they want to do. Have you ever lived that way in your life? Honestly? Honestly. There was a period where I was at Bible college, going to chapel nearly every day, going to Bible classes every day, yet I was choosing to live in willful disobedience to God. I was saying, God, I'm putting you out of my mind. I'm putting you out of my heart. I will not let the truth penetrate me because I want to do what I want to do. And I like what the way my life is going right now better. And so this is what David is writing about. Now, some would say that David in this passage was talking to Gentile people, those outside of the covenant people of Israel. And they point to verse 4 where it says, Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. But I believe, as studying this, that the primary audience is the rebellious covenant people of Israel, even though the Gentiles could possibly be referred to here. But either way, it doesn't matter because it's covered in Scripture the fact that nobody has an excuse to deny God and deny who he is. Romans chapter 1, Paul writes that although they, meaning those pagans, the Gentiles, although they knew God, so in their heart, we talked about this during the identity series, although they knew God, they can't help but see God's general revelation. And if they desired so, God would show them more. They did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. They claimed to be wise, but they became fools. So we deny God's existence because it's convenient to us. It's easy for us. I want to do my thing, and God, if I acknowledge you and acknowledge who you are, then I have to submit to your authority. So people suppress the truth. And so we naturally, humanly, humanly speaking, we fight against it, we disregard it, we obscure it. Why? Because we don't want God in control. So two things. Number one, fools intentionally and aggressively flout their independence from God and his commands. That's what a fool does. He flouts his independence from God, and he does so intentionally and aggressively. Look at verse 1 again. The fool says in his heart. So there's a contemplation there. Like He says it to himself in his heart. He says, there's no God. And he says, they're, David writes, they're corrupt. They do these abominable deeds. And he says, there is none who does good. So more than an intellectual rejection of God, this is a moral rejection of God. I'm refusing to acknowledge God and his authority, and I'm embracing what comes naturally to me, just destructively being self-centered, just destructive and self-centered to the core. And so the fool, verse 2, the Lord looks down from heaven on the children of men to see if there are any 
who understand, who seek after God. And David clearly here is using poetic language. As I said, these are songs, these are poems. God doesn't just peel the curtain back and look over from heaven, right? I mean, he's everywhere. God is all-powerful. He's everywhere. But poetically, David's speaking here, and he's given this, this vivid picture of God and his authority and looking down, much like he did at, at, for Noah and the flood, looked down and these people were corrupt and evil. And that's the picture that he's painting. And, and I think this verse doesn't fully capture the picture here, what David's trying to paint. I think what we have is God looking down upon the children of men, and he's saying, you little, teeny, tiny little fools. Honestly, do you, do you think that you can just ignore me, obscure me, act like that I don't exist? And look at the second half of verse 2. He says, look, the Lord looks down from heaven to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. He says, if you want to be wise, if you want wisdom, look up. Look up. But instead, you're looking inward. And you're looking and saying, I'm smart. I'm intelligent. And this pride is just obscene before God. Verse 3, he says, they have all, they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So in verse 1, he says, there is none who does good. Then he repeats it again. Anytime things are repeated in Scripture, pay attention, extra attention. He's repeating something here for a purpose. People's desires were only wickedness. Humans lack the moral ability to come to God. As long as we remain in the flesh, unregenerated is the word that Scripture uses, he will never choose God's righteousness. And if this verse sounds kind of familiar to you, Paul picked up on this theme in Romans chapter 3, verse 12, where he wrote, All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And so, what's he talking about? Because you may think, well, there's people I know who ignore God or don't even say they're Christians, don't believe in God, but to say they do no good or nothing right, how can that be true? Well, obviously, People are able to do things that are morally right. All right? There's, there's people who don't believe in God who can do good things. Even the most evil person may occasionally do something that appears like it's good. But David and Paul are not speaking of specific acts or even a general pattern of behavior. What he's getting at is the inner character, the heart. A good work must not only conform to the commandment of God, it must come from a heart to which glorifies him, and no one habitually does that. Let me say that again. A good work in God's eyes must come, not only come to conform to God's commands, but it must come from a heart committed to glorifying him, and no one does that. The only single person to ever live that way was Jesus Christ. And so God's character, his standard of righteousness is shown in Christ and Christ alone. And if you think back to last week, the identity series, that righteous before God, you're saints before God only because of Jesus. And you see, when we read this passage, uh, some of these passages in Psalms, and particularly this one, it's really easy to see other people or our culture in this. But I think we have to be honest and see ourselves in this. Because apart from Jesus and his righteousness, there's nothing good in us. Nothing measures up to God's standard of righteousness. God says, I see your heart. Unless it's tuned 
to glorify me, then it's filthy rags. It's, it's nasty. It's, it's not anything that I can approve of. And so God's standard is holiness and righteousness. And the theological term for us here in our state is total depravity. It doesn't mean that we're, we can be as bad as we could be, but it's sin has impacted every part of humanity and even the physical world that we live in. So our minds, our wills, our emotions have been corrupted by sin. And it's, it helps me to remember that the DNA of sin, I say this a lot, is what? It's selfishness. Because sin can be looked at as like that thing that people do or that guy, what he did. But when we see that the DNA of sin is just our innate selfishness, I want what I want, then we're no different than the practical atheist that David's talking about here that who says, yeah, maybe intellectually there's a guy, but practically speaking, I'm putting that out of my mind because I'm going to do what I want to do. I want to be my own God. And what's amazing for the Christian, even though we can fall into that, as I said for me, and I know you can think about your own life, and there are many periods where you've lived that way as well. For the Christian, Scripture tells us there's this ongoing internal battle that exists in us. And not to embarrass Max, but when he was sharing his testimony, he talked about how that God would never stop pursuing him over the years. That he made a profession of faith in Christ at a young age. And God just wouldn't let up. I mean, he said that there's this, always this, this conflict inside of him. Why? Because God tells us his children have the Holy Spirit, Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians. And can Christ be in you? and your identity not become more and more like Christ, or you're going to be miserable, and you're going to have moments where maybe you feel some contentment through your functional saviors. But generally, overall, the pattern of your life is going to be constant depression and misery and failure because you're not seeking God. You're not pursuing God. And so not only is there internal battle that wages in all of our lives, but there's also this external battle that exists. So these fools, they're not satisfied with living in a way that's godless, but they want to be reckless and bring as many people along with them as they can. Look what verse 4 says, that they oppress the righteous. Have they no knowledge? All the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. So it's this idea of that, that these evil people, they're just pursuing these righteous people, these holy people, which would be God's covenant people of Israel, and they're, they're pursuing after them in order to oppress them and make their lives terrible. And as he's writing in, in this passage, he's thinking, as I said, of Israel. And I think of passages like Deuteronomy 7, verse 6, where it says, The Lord your God has chosen you, the Israelites, out of all the people on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So God picked this small nation, these, these Jewish people, to be his people. And if you've read the scriptures and you know the Old Testament, you know that they were constantly being 
harassed and, and drawn away and persecuted and enticed by those wicked nations around them. And sometimes we don't understand just the extent of that wickedness, human sacrifice and just awful, horrible things that existed during that culture. But God wanted his people to be distinct, and so he gave them his laws, his moral law for them to follow. But it put them at great tension with the nations around them because they were distinct. And, and, and when nations saw them, they knew the Jewish people were special. They lived in a way that no one else did. And that's the calling for us as well. When we live for Jesus, it puts us on a collision course with the world. It puts us on a collision course with the lifestyles of those around us, those fools who ignore God and ignore his laws. And the, the sad thing, and I'm guilty of this, so this is not pointing the finger. It's pointing four fingers back at me, right? The sad thing is we spend so much of our time wanting to identify, be accepted by, or hang out with the foolish people of this world. And so we let our identities, which are in Christ, be compromised and our lifestyle and our testimony be compromised because we're being witnesses, right? Or I want to be a good influence. But the truth is, look at your life. How's that working out for you, right? Like, are those people bringing you up or are they pulling you down? Is Christ being exalted or are you becoming more carnal in your life and your mind? And so we're on this collision course, and you can't make friends with the culture. You can't want to accept and, and be buddies with those who are fools. You can't. And so the Old Testament often uses this imagery of these oppressors eating up those who are they're abusing. And so that's the picture here. And despite this, and despite what David sees happening, he's confident that those who refuse to acknowledge God will face judgment. Look at verse 5 and 6. There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, talking to the, to the, to the evil ones, the, the fools. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So David's saying, be patient, righteous ones, be patient. They will have plenty to fear because God is with the righteous. He is for his people. He is working for his glory and for the good of those who love him. And so he's, he's saying he's the refuge. He's the strength. And so we may feel poor and we may feel oppressed. And there may be actually referring to those who were literally in poverty because of this oppression. And he's saying, wait on the Lord. As we sang in that last song, Unreal, but such a good reminder. Look back through your life, the faithfulness of God. Look at how he's been with you every step of the way. And in that, we find hope and we find strength. And in verse 7, that's what David does. He, he just sings this, this amazing climax to the song. He says, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. So he's crying out, yes, the world is bad. And yes, we're being oppressed. And yes, it's tough. But God's going to come through. God is coming through. And look, it doesn't say if the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, but it says when the Lord restores 
the fortunes of his people. He anticipates the time when God will vindicate his people and deliver them from the fools who oppress them. And I believe David is speaking of a greater king than himself. I think he's speaking for the Messiah, one who will come and rescue his people. And I, and I believe he's looking toward what Jeremiah 31, 33 talks about, how that the king will come and he will write his law upon our hearts. And Colossians, as I mentioned earlier, that Christ gives us the power to respond to the holiness of God and live lives that are reflecting of him to be holy because Christ in us changes everything. Christ in us, the hope of glory. So what's the takeaway for today from this psalm? Here's the takeaway. Everyone left to themselves is a fool. Everyone left to themselves is a fool. You're a practical atheist. When you think you have your life under your control and your plans and you're trying to make it happen for you and you push God out of the picture, I promise you that you're being the fool. And in the end, you will see that play out. And as God's children, if we don't long for his return because of these functional saviors that are working for us at the moment, we're going to come to, to, we're going to, come to see how wrong those saviors are and how those idols will fail us ultimately. So I, I think the heart really matter today is to remember. And the song said it so well, to remember the faithfulness of God. Remembering is powerful. Remembering is powerful for the heart. But our lives, we're so busy that we don't have time to remember. We're running around and we're doing all this stuff and, and, and we say that we don't have any time but yet, how many of those hours of YouTube are you spending or on Facebook or this or that? I mean, we're, we're finding time to, to, to worship our functional gods. We are. But we don't have time to remember his grace and to know that he's holy and he's near. That's the heart. Remember. And then the hands, very practically. Foolproof your life. Foolproof your life. Who are you allowing to influence you, honestly? Come on, honestly. Those people that you spend the weekend with, those people that you hang out and do good with, what, what's Corinthians tell us? Bad company ruins good morals. All right, it does. Bad company ruins good morals. There's so many amazing Christ followers in this room that should be your closest allies. As my friend Jeff Oldham likes to say, we're in the foxhole together. There's people who want to be in your foxhole. You need those around you who are going to speak truth, who are going to motivate you toward Jesus, push you to Jesus, and help you to run harder after him. And so the hands issue can be really an easy adjustment, all right? Think about it. Talk about it as a couple if you're married. Who is it? Come on. Yep, yep, me, same thought. Yep, we need to distance ourselves there. We're not influencing them. They're bringing us down. So what's it going to be? Are you living as a fool? Time will show. And it's painful getting there. God will get your attention. He'll bring you back. He promises that if you're his child. But the road to that is going to be rough. A lot of heartache. God is God. He will be exalted. He will reveal himself to be who he is. 
he will not allow you to worship anything else other than him. Let's pray. Father God, we know left to ourselves, we're, we're so foolish. And we allow this life and the shiny things around us to captivate us. And God, it really just reveals where our heart is. Our friends reveal our hearts. The way we spend our time reveals our hearts. The way we spend our money reveals our hearts. And God, you're exposing that today through your word. And God, I admit it's a, it's a battle every day. And for those who are following you, we can't help but to pray what verse 7 says. Come, please come for our rescue. Re- return Jesus. We get tired of the battle. We get frustrated with ourselves. We get disgusted by our culture. God, I pray that you'll help us, as long as you have us here, to be lights to this world, to be salt to this world. And God, help us to not be fools and waste our time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.